Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Raid, and I'm a naturopathic doctor. And today I am joined by one of my naturopathic colleagues, Dr. Lee Clement. Uh, Dr. Clement practices in California, and he specializes in complex chronic illness. So he's a perfect guest for the show. Really excited to pick his brain on a wide range of topics uh, related to this area. Um, just before we jump into the show and I bring uh, Dr. Clement on, uh, just just a quick reminder that if you um, haven't signed up for my newsletter, um, please consider doing so. Uh, when you sign up for my newsletter, or, or sorry, uh, well, my mailing list, which which signs you up for my newsletter, um, doing so gives you uh, free access to the first two modules of my Overcoming Chronic Illness course. This is a course that I developed to help patients and caregivers and family and friends of patients to um, be able to better navigate the waters of dealing with complex chronic illness. Um, each uh, uh, the various modules that are included within this course include topics like mold illness, chronic infections, mast cell activation syndrome, heavy metals, and other relevant topics, things that we talk about on these podcasts and in my social media um, posts, if you if you follow me on social media. Um, and within uh, with for each one of those modules, um, I have um, included a cheat sheet that's available to pass on to healthcare providers that you might be working with. Um, if those healthcare providers are, say, specialists or helping you in certain uh, with certain elements of your complex chronic illness issues, like say, you know, somebody you're working with who's really good at treating mold toxicity or chronic infections, maybe if they're not so well-versed in mast cell activation syndrome or small intestine bacterial overgrowth or whatnot, then these cheat sheets are developed to, um, as a kind of a quick resource to pass on to that healthcare provider, to give them some guidance in terms of, you know, what types of tests to run or treatments to consider or things like that. So trying to, again, the overall goal of the course is to um, help folks to be better able to um, navigate those sometimes well, oftentimes complex uh, waters of complex chronic illness. Um, the other advantage to signing up for my um, mailing list is that um, you'll be the first to know about whether I have a live Q&A session coming up, um, upcoming topics for my podcast, uh, different uh, social media videos that I'm posting, and just um, I use my uh, newsletters to just kind of... Um, uh, there's a little bit of a sounding board, if you will, for just things that I'm interested in, exciting things that I'm working on in practice or hearing about or whatnot. So um, if you're interested in signing up, um, please uh, click uh, check out the show notes for this episode. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, or if you are watching this on YouTube or some other social media um, uh site or whatnot. Uh, it's in the downstairs. Uh, downstairs. Oh my goodness. It's in the uh, description uh, below. Um, I, I will leave it there. Hopefully not be quite so mush mouthed for my interview with Dr. Clement. So just going to pause the recording for a sec. I'll be right back with Dr. Clement. All right, everyone. I am now joined by Dr. Lee. Uh, Dr. Lee, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to chat with you about complex chronic illness. There's not that many of us, I think, in the uh, healthcare world that you know really focus on complex chronic illness. So it's always nice to chat with someone who's seeing the same stuff um, day to day um, as as I am, and and a select few of us do. Um, so uh, just before we jump into some questions, okay. would you mind just um, uh, letting folks know uh, who you are, where you practice, and uh, just giving us some background in terms of how you got into uh, treating complex chronic illness? Okay, great. Thanks, Dr. Rada. Thanks for having me on this. Um, I have been kind of starting off with more regenerative medicine in my practice. I uh, originally learned prolotherapy and that was my passion. And you know, I, that, that kind of started working really well for most of the patients that responded. And then there were some that didn't respond to you know, regenerative medicine. Got a, then I started thinking of why. 
And you know, the more you delve into it, they have other underlying issues that are preventing from healing. And then as we go down the rabbit hole of figuring out why, you know, they discovered they may have Lyme disease or mold or various, you know, hidden infections that didn't otherwise think of because otherwise they look, you know, externally look okay, but they're just not healing. And it just started, you know, falling in my lap that all these patients are coming in. They need uh, the the mysteries uh, at least answered if they can. And you know, the more I learned, it just kind of picked up upon you know learning how to treat Lyme, learning how to treat mold, uh, other chronic infections. Just you know, kind of added to my my arsenal of of detective work and tools over the years. And that's kind of where I'm at now. You know, just gradually organically learning about things to help my patients out, you know, that can't get help otherwise. That makes a lot of sense. And <laughs> yeah. it's really great that you, you know, dug deeper because I, I think some clinicians would just kind of stop there. It's like, oh, you didn't respond to that prolotherapy injection. Like, I guess this therapy isn't for you, but yeah, digging deeper and figuring out why that's uh, yeah, yeah, good to, good to ask those why questions. Um, that's great. Yeah. Um, and just, uh, I know some folks listening, uh, I mean, a lot of my patients, I think, would be familiar with the term regenerative inje injections, just because I, I do a lot of regenerative injections as well. Um, but just for uh, listeners um, that uh, are not patients of either of ours, um, would you mind just describing yeah. what uh, regenerative injection therapy um, is all about? Great. Um, yeah, so the regeneration, really, the body repairs itself naturally through its normal means. Uh, what we're doing with regenerative injections is we're just injecting and stimulating the body's mechanisms to begin the process all over again. So the, the various agents that we use um, are proliferants. And so they stimulate an injury response that triggers the body to create an inflammatory uh, signaling cascade that eventually leads to new healthy tissue reformulating and remodeling, and then ultimately repair. Um, so that's kind of the simple answer is just we're getting the body to wake up its internal mechanisms uh, or default mechanisms so that I can do a great job of getting it back to where it should have begun all along. That's great. Um, and, and do you mind just sharing the names of a couple of the regenerative therapies that you oh, use? Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, the, the kind of grandfather of all of the ones is prolotherapy, which is a simple uh, dextrose, uh, concentrated sugar injection that it's enough to irritate the tissues. And then, uh, we, we also utilize ozone, prolozone, which is a, basically a combination of a little bit of dextrose, but using ozone as the irritating agent um, and other nutrients like B, B vitamins and amino acids in the uh, mixture as well. And then we also use PRP, which is stands for platelet-rich plasma, which uses the concentrated uh, platelets and growth factors from your blood supply and concentrating injecting into local tissues to give your body kind of a starting army of more platelets in that region that's injured. And then we also utilize um, ozone along with the PRP, which just takes it a step further in, in this regeneration pathways. And we also utilize peptide therapies that we can inject alongside of the regeneration uh, injections or regenerative injections. And then also access to stem cells and stem cell exosomes to uh, inject into the tissues as well. So some of the biological agents that just give your body a, a, a faster healing response other, other than utilizing what you have internally. Yeah, that's, that's great uh, summary. Thank you. And, okay. and just for uh, folks listening, if you're in beautiful Canada, like me, um, unfortunately, uh, stem cells are pretty much not accessible here in Canada. Um, exosomes, I believe are not legal in Canada, peptide therapy, not legal in Canada, not for any good reason, um, to my understanding. Um, but just there's, I guess, too much yeah. red tape, like 
uh, uh, whether it's political or, or whatnot, I'm not sure. But uh, unfortunately, um, to my understanding, PRP is the, the strongest regenerative therapy that we can work with combined with ozone, making it work even better. But uh, yeah, it's, it's nice that our, our friends and neighbors south of the border um, have access to a wider range of those therapeutic interventions. But, uh, but think, thankfully, you know, good, the good old grandfather of all, at all, as you said, prolotherapy can work well and, yeah. and uh, yeah. we get lots of good results with PRP and ozone. So yeah, but uh, thank, thank you for summarizing that for folks. Um, of course, yeah. So um, just before we uh, jump into the questions, just a general caveat, say it every, I say it every podcast episode, um, nothing that we're staying uh, over the course of this interview should be construed as medical advice. This is for informational purposes only. If you need medical advice, please talk to your healthcare provider to get that advice. Um, so with, with all of that out of the way, um, in your, uh, you mentioned uh, Lyme and you mentioned mold. Um, would you mind uh, just speaking to the general approach that you take when a patient say comes in and uh, let's say they were in mold, um, they got sick, um, they're out of mold, they say been out of mold for, you know, six plus months or something like that, but they're still sick. Um, and, and of course there could be mold in their new place or the remediation didn't work. Of course, there's those variables, but let's just say okay. for the sake of this argument, uh, cause we, we know, you know, get out of mold, remediate all that. Um, but, uh, if yeah. a patient's still sick when they've got out of mold, um, what would be, uh, just kind of the general approach that you would take to, um, helping that patient to, to get well. So one of the things is besides just getting out of the situation is double check if they have the ability to effectively detox the remaining mycotoxins that are saturated in their tissues, if they still are. Um, that's one area is just you know, foundationally, like as naturopaths, we like to focus on you know, the, some of the root issues. So the basic mecha mechanisms like the liver, colon, kidneys, if they're stagnated somewhere along the way, we make sure that they're working well. Uh, you know, I use personally use binders to help facilitate the excretion uh, of the mold toxins out of the tissues. Um, and then the other aspect that I've been using. I'm sorry to interrupt, Doctor. Oh, sorry to interrupt, Doctor Lee. Do you mind just speaking yeah, to right. which uh, types of binders you you typically go for? Of course. Yeah, I mean, I personally have been using Cellcore's line of uh, binders. Are you familiar with theirs? Uh, I so am, but have... if, if you don't mind speaking to them, uh, yeah. other folks, okay. the folks listening might not be. Of course, yes, yeah. Sounds good. So they are humic pelvic uh, carbons. They have been particularly activated to have more affinity for organic material, including mycotoxins. So they have the ability to really kind of sequester the body for these particular mycotoxins. So they can end up, you know, being attracted to the GI tract and then eventually pooped out uh, and excreted that way. Um, the nice thing about that particular binder, uh, the binders through Cellcore is they have that more specific affinity. Um, in the past, before Cellcore was around, you know, we had access to you know, activated charcoal or uh, other source of humic pelvic minerals. Um, and so that before it was pretty, it's pretty helpful, but the problem is it only has a selective binding capacity or it's not selective. It just grabs a hold of everything. So the tricky part for patient compliance is just being able to take it, you know, between your supplements, your food and everything else. Um, also in the past use like cholestyramine, which is a off-label use of uh, medication to uh, grab stuff through the bile. Um, but I don't use that one particularly as much anymore. So I primarily use cell core at the moment, um, but it depends, you know, there's certain patients that don't respond well to that. So we, we do use other mixed blends of, of, of binders available. 
Um, and just on the topic of binders before you get back to okay. the, the rest of your approach. Um, so yeah. with humic and fulvic acid, which um, I, I've had some patients who are on Cellcor products and I've seen good binding results with those for sure. Um, do they have, uh, does Cellcor have products where it's just humic and fulvic acid or is that, I thought they had some combos where there's some bentonite clay in there and charcoal as well, like some kind of more broad spectrum ones or am I, do I have my yes. wires crossed on that? Yeah. So the, no, you, you got it right. All, yeah. So they have, all, yeah, they have different blends. Okay. Do, do um, they have just all of them? I think the carboxy is the only one that is truly just humic and oh, okay. acid, fulvic acid, and then it has okay. a little bit of citric acid in there. Other than that, there's no other combined things. But the other products do have a variation of different things in there. You know, certain right. like a root, like yucca root is in one of them. Right. Um, and just uh, for folks listening, uh, we, um, Dr. Lee and I have a little bit of a time leg. So if it sounds like we're talking over each other, we're, we're not being rude. Uh, we're just uh, yeah, having some mi minor connection issues. Um, so for the carboxy, which uh, is, is primarily the folic and humic acid, um, were you insinuating earlier that that can be taken like with any proxy, um, with any proximity you want to meals and things like that? Like you don't have to take it away from things as you do with charcoal and whatnot? Um, yeah, so the, the convenience part of it is that you can then take it with or without food, although it, it might be a little bit better if you take it away from, you know, food and supplements, but if you were, it wouldn't completely compete against the things that you currently have. Okay. So for some patients that just don't have it in their wherewithal to be able to, you know, find another time to take something else, it allows them to be compliant with part of the treatment protocol. So that, I think that's the biggest advantage when we're dealing with patients that, have mold is they have like, you know, 20, 30 different supplements, and then they have to space things out between what they're eating. And they also have to figure out what to eat. And then, you know, they have no time for a binder because it's between everything. Yeah. With whatever little energy they have left, you know? <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. No, that's, that's really convenient. Yeah. And I, I, I wasn't aware of that um, specifically. So that's, that's great to know. Um, I've had, you know, a handful of patients over the years where like the, the deal breaker was they're like, I just can't take stuff away from my meals. Like either they already have too many other meds that they're taking is around a bunch of pharmaceuticals with different rules for timing or whatnot, or they're on too many other supplements yeah. or whatnot. So that's really good to know as an option. Um, I know with other binders, um, you know, more, I, I would say in my experience, most notoriously charcoal, um, where I'd say about maybe 20 ish percent of patients who take charcoal, get some constipation side effects, you know, clay, I find a little bit less common, right. um, with, uh, say the carboxy blender, you know, it doesn't have to be, um, that product, yeah. I suppose, but with humic and fulvic acid is, uh, have you noticed, um, if it has a risk of constipation associated with it, or is it relatively well tolerated compared to other binders? It's realistically, it's been re relatively well tolerated. There's maybe a small subset of population that have already, you know, motility issues. Those are the ones that might run into it, but I would say on the average compared to like the charcoal and the clay, in the past, uh, this has been really the relatively easily tolerated, not going to impact the, uh, the constipation much at all. That's great. Well, thank you for yeah. the binder. Diversion. <laughs> okay. Uh, great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank, thank you for the binder diversion there. So, uh, of course, of course. you don't mind circling back. So you mentioned, uh, yeah, binders are no obviously an important part of your mold yeah. treatment protocol. What, what other components are right. important? Binders. Uh, well, I guess, I guess start from the basics is, you know, the micronutrients is, you know, the foundation vitamins, minerals, amino acids, so that they're, you know, general phase one, phase two detoxification pathways are working well. 
Um, and then they have some energy to be able to perform the detoxification just, just by having the right nutrients in the plate. And then uh, also focusing on lymphatic drainage for some people. Uh, most people, when they're dealing with mold, they, the lymph system gets congested. So they're not excreting most of the toxins into their excretion pathway. So the lymph systems can get kind of plugged up. And so I use a lot of the homeopathic and or herbal uh, topical drainage uh, programs. One is through Picana. So Picana has their big three detox, which is like a liver tonic, a kidney tonic, and a lymphatic tonic. They also have like a topical cream for lymph usage, which I use quite regularly. And then another company I use is Herbalix. They're um, herbal-based uh, lymphatic system. They have a foot cream and a lymphatic fat metabolizing cream and a deodorant uh, protocol. So it just really opens up the pathways for things to get dumped into the drainage pathways, which include like your uh, liver, bile, and then through your kidneys and, and colon. So those make things easier and easier for people to tolerate the heavier uh, step that comes next. So after they're able to, you know, pee, poop, sweat somewhat, um, we then encourage, uh, so I mentioned um, sweat part is also important too, like sauna usage, if they have access to it, it would be nice to do. Um, and then also copy enemas. So that makes making sure that they're able to clear things out. So there's a mechanism by which if you're using copy enemas, you, you enhance the excretion of your bile acid, which a lot of the mold toxins tend to get you know, trapped up there. And it frees up the liver to be able to produce more glutathione and further clear things out through the intestinal tract. Um, and then after that point is when we can introduce antifungal medicines. And so if you've been exposed to mold, there's a likelihood of you being colonized by these organisms and they found you a great host because we are nice, warm, damp, dark inside and possibly a lot of sugar coming in. Uh, they're not going to want to leave you very well. So in this case, uh, utilizing antifungal medicines is kind of the later step, um, but probably the most effective step at ultimately clearing somebody of mold you know, in the long run. Um, a couple of follow-up questions there, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so as far as the drainage remedies go, and uh, I've, I've never used Pecanas myself. Uh, I've heard lots of good things about them. There's just other drainage companies I've used before. Um, sure. But I've, I've had some patients where um, they've, you know, flared pretty badly from drainage remedies. And um, I'm just wondering if, and I, it's not a majority of patients by any stretch, but yeah. um, I'm just wondering, um, have you seen drainage remedies, which like on paper should be the gentlest things on the planet. Yeah, um, yeah, but, yeah. Um, even say in folks who aren't like particularly prone to flares, like, of course, there are those good old universal, universal reactors that react to yeah. everything or people that, you right. know, flare from anything that you know, uh, you, 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 um, it's uh, very, very easily flared people, but even in folks who are not in that, those categories, um, sometimes had some pretty notable flares from drainage. So would you mind speaking to like any experience you've seen with that? And, and if you see someone sure. flaring from say a drainage remedy, um, what do you like, what are the, not giving dosages or anything, but sure. what are some of the like steps that you would take? Like, do you just drop it like a hot potato? Do you, what, what, what do you do to, to manage yeah, it? Sounds good. Not tolerating it well. Okay, so so with Picana's remedies, um, th there's there's actually their their inventory. They have like fifty plus different remedies for different organ functions. I try to simplify by keep, keeping the big three that they have as a product because it's it's the easiest one to begin with. 
I would say of, of all of the treatment options we have, that's probably the most benign and the most easily tolerated, even for the people that are at the sickest. Though the, the thing with Picana is the remedies are homeopathic and they're blend of homeopathics, but they're in a base of alcohol. So there's that small subset of patients that have alcohol sensitivities. And in, th in these situations, um, they actually have instructions for being able to burn off the alcohol. So you can, you know, uh, pour it in, you know, a, a, a container that you can actually heat up under the stove and it, it'll evaporate the alcohol. And that makes it also even more tolerable. So people can then just at that point, just mix it with water and, and ingest it at that point. Um, even, even then, like if people can't tolerate, they can use literally a drop topically and that still helps, you know, cause you're, you're getting just a minute amount of energy, not just not much of a chemical pathway in the body. So it's super well tolerated. I've seen there's, yeah, the, the people that have reactions in the past, if you stay on a very, very low, low strength, they can weather that and allows them to handle a lot more as they go. But I think the, the most sensitive people I've had, they actually feel like this one does the most for them. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and then uh, just on, around the antifungal side of things, um, would you mind speaking to just what types of antifungals you'd typically be working with as, that, uh, as part of that sure. final step? Yeah. Um, for me, uh, my primary, primary one, it would be itraconazole. It's just it has the most uh, depth and penetration and effectiveness for mold organisms. Um, I, I do use nystatin orally, but the problem with nystatin is it doesn't get systemically absorbed. So it is good for when you have GI fungal organisms. Um, it, it's great for candida, uh, but it doesn't really touch the mold nearly as much as hydroconazole will. Um, fluconazole, I'll use in patients that have extreme candida overgrowth. Uh, fluconazole is quite good for candida, not so much for mold though. So it doesn't it, it really attack as much of the other uh, fungal organisms besides candida. Um, so I, I would use sometimes a combination of all three if it warranted, uh, but oftentimes if they can tolerate it, we would just go primarily to itraconazole. But it really depends on the patient because sometimes you got to do a little bit of nystatin first just to clear out the, uh, the more aggressive candida in the gut because then if the gut is going to flare up, they can't tolerate anything else. So we could start off that way and then gradually a uh, little by little, you know, introduce itraconazole. And with itraconazole, we can do, you know, nasal and or oral. Um, I actually have a patient right now trying a suppository uh, of itraconazole too, um, who just, you know, orally, they react too strongly that way. So we're, we're testing it out right now to see how that, how that works. It's always good to think outside of the box, even if it comes down to suppositories. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've, I've been there before with patients. So I, I've, yeah, we do what we have to do. Um, right, right. Have you found uh, with um, either oral versus nasal itraconazole, um, like have you found one to be more consistently helpful or effective than the other? I think oral is probably the best. Um, nasally, I would say it's just more localized. I mean, you do get some systemic absorption eventually, but the administration, you can't put more than you know, it's like 10, 20 milligrams up the nose versus orally, um, we, 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 I typically go at the max dose if they can tolerate it with a hydroconazole, which is 600 milligrams a day. Um, and, and if you have the foundational stuff we mentioned earlier, like your liver detox pathways, your lymphatic and binders, they 
can tolerate those higher doses eventually uh, without any issues of you know elevated liver enzymes or or any liver issues. You know, as long as you have those foundational things working, because if you just jump straight to throwing someone on 600 milligrams hydroconazole without giving any liver kidney support, not going to have a great time. Fair enough. Um, maybe I'll ask you one more question, if you don't mind, about the mold yeah. before we move to a different topic. Um, and it, sure. you know, uh, spills over in other topics as well. Of course, um, yeah. In terms of uh, just the role of working, because you mentioned um, in part of your sort of a overall uh, framework, how you treat folks with mold illness, you mentioned like bringing in certain nutrients and B vitamins and things like that. And I'm wondering uh, just around methylated B vitamins, um, kind of a, a multi-part question and feel free to just freestyle, sure. whatever answer you want to give out, uh, whatever okay. you want to share, but I'm just wondering, um, in terms of methylation, um, how often do you find, uh, that you have patients who don't tolerate uh, methylated B vitamins or you have to build up the dose really slowly? Um, how often do you find that say doing a genetic test to see if they're, you know, if they're MTHFR mutants or not, um, is clinically relevant. Um, and then overall, have you found that making sure that patients are being properly methylated, um, has been a, a significant factor to get well. And that's, you know, whether it's mold or heavy metals or whatever methylation might be impacting, obviously it's important for lots of things, but, uh, yeah. Could yeah. you speak to methylation and in, in yes. that regard to some extent, please? Sounds good. Um, I try to include the methylation profile or the MTHFR gene test on most of my initial consultations, if they don't have it already done elsewhere. Um, it just gives a good insight of, as to why they might be susceptible to their level of illness um, because tends to be the people that are sicker usually have this gene not fully working. Um, and in those situations, once we do find out if they have a genetic deficiency or a genetic uh, SNP for the MTHFR gene, uh, we try to supplement with methylated B vitamins. I would say of the population that we do, probably 10 to 15% of the people just can't tolerate it. Um, once we start increasing the level of methylated B vitamins, the other few feel amazing. You know, they just think work that they haven't had working before, but the thing is it, it goes with it. Like if, if they're missing this, you know, particular methylation pathways, you're, you're, you're feeding the engine that has like uh, many things in the queue waiting to be processed all at once. So then you can come through a storm of too much to tolerate in one go where they can feel sicker during that time. And so that has happened on a couple patients where they actually feel more anxious, more fatigued, ir ir irritable, um, the crash, um, just from having higher amounts of these methylated B vitamins. So in those cases, we'll just have to dial it back a little bit and just do what they can tolerate along the way. Um, but again, like that's smaller subset of the population. Um, eventually they, they can tolerate it, but again, it's just really the fine, fine point is like, what is the choke point along the way? Is it, is it the methylated B vitamins or other nutrients that are part of the picture? Um, if it's methylated B vitamins, then we just have to do what they can tolerate until this overall burden decreases, whatever toxin burden that they have. Great. Thank you. That's very well put. Yeah. Um, have you had any patients where, um, they needed injectable or intravenous forms of methylated B vitamins to get their methylation needs fully met? Or is, is that not something you've really seen in practice? Um, not as much. I mean, we typically in, in our vitamin co uh, combinations for at least injectables, uh, methyl B12 is, uh, kind of our staple that we use for everything. Um, 
Methylfolate, unfortunately, in uh, California has not been available for many years now. So that's kind of out of the question. We haven't been able to utilize that. So really, I, I can't speak as much because we, when we did have available, we would use it on those who could use it. But if not, the methyl B12 seems to be helpful. Um, but I mean, I try to stick with oral things as much as we can because that's what's more readily available, um, either sublingual or um, oral capsules. And people tend to absorb them reasonably well, you know, unless they have a true uh, leaky gut or really horrible intestinal permeability, they do tolerate the oral ones okay. And even they get like 1% or 2% out of whatever is orally, they're still getting something. And that's something that's, that's all they can handle anyway. So I think yeah, for me, they've been okay with that. Great. Yeah, just as a point of interest, um, in my own practice, um, and this is colored by the fact that I, you know, have treated hundreds and hundreds of kids on the autism spectrum. And part of that, uh, kind of world of like the biomedical approach to autism is, um, working with, uh, you know, methylcobalamin and yeah. I've had so many patients over the years and on the autism spectrum where, you know, we'd be giving them like mega doses of oral methyl B12. And like, sometimes it would help a lot. Sometimes it wouldn't really make much of a difference. So we'd switch over to an injectable form and um, that would be like just a night and day difference. Um, and I know a number oh, of other colleagues where they see that change. And so I thought, Hey, you know, there, there's a lot of um, biochemical atypical stuff happening in, in kids on the autism spectrum or, or adult yeah. patients on the autism spectrum. Maybe that might apply to some of these complex chronic illness patients. And, and it's definitely not everybody, but I'd say, right. I, I mean, I've had dozens and dozens of cases over the years where, um, you know, we've. Uh, say a patient's just really struggling with fatigue or neurological symptoms or whatnot. And I'm like, we're doing all the stuff that should be working, but it's kind of slow. And uh, sometimes we'll just do a little trial run of, uh, we just teach the patients to self-administer, you know, sub Q, like fairly high dose methyl B12, like, you know, pretty mega dose and um, not, not that it's helpful for everybody, but I've had a number of patients where like, that's just been their saving grace. Like they'll inject themselves every maybe two to seven days, depending on what they need. And like, they just get this nice energy boost or their neuropathy goes way down or whatnot. So just as a little clinical pearl dimension, um, it's, uh, it's sometimes, um, the methyl B12 seems to have these even stronger properties to it when we administer it, um, sub Q, um, just, yeah, just a little FYI. What, what, what's, uh, what dose ranges do you use, uh, when you say higher? Um, so, doses? uh, have you ever heard of something within the autism world called the new brander protocol before? No, I actually have. Um, so, uh, there's this Dr. Newbrander, And so he has a calculation and, oh man, I'm, I'm blanking on it now, which is embarrassing because recording a podcast. Uh, but anyway, it's something like 6.25 micrograms per kilogram of ideal body weight or something. No, it's more, I think it's more than that. Anyways, it winds up being like somewhere between like five to 30 milligrams of methyl B12 per shot. Um, so it's, so it's, wow. quite a lot, but the compounding pharmacies, well, we used to be able to, we haven't been able to get it for the last like year or so, but, um, they used to be able to compound 25 milligram per mil methyl B12. So we'd have to administer like, you know, um, like 30 units would give us like, you know, our 30 milligrams or whatever it happened to be. Yeah. So now, now we can only get 10 milligrams per mil, but yeah, you just get the super concentrated methyl B12. So okay, they're not right, like injecting right. themselves with gallons of methyl B12, of course, kind of of one course, milligram yeah. per mil concentration. Well, that's, but, um, that's, yeah, that's good. I think our, our limitation right now, like I, we used to have the 10 milligrams available, but I think with all of the U S uh, FDA, 
five downs in all the pharmacies, the most we can oh. get is a five milligram per mil. So oh, okay. that becomes <laughs> restrictive here. Yeah. Yeah. That's a little more challenging. Yeah. Especially where yeah. with the new brander protocol, you're uh, supposed to inject sub Q. So you, according to him, you get more of a oh, delayed wow. release though. So it's <laughs> right. uh, yeah. So, which is handy. Like, you know, patients just would prefill little insulin syringes and, yeah. you know, they go to town. It was really quite easy, but um, anyways, bit of a side note. Yeah. I might have to try that myself. Yeah. <laughs> Fun, fun. Come up to Canada, you know, get some, get some sub Q yeah. uh, high potency B12. Um, so, uh, sw switching gears here, if you don't mind, okay. um, uh, let me see here. Man, oh man, I need to like book these podcast interviews for longer. So I'm like, oh, we can't get through all of this. Yeah. It's not that time. We start just barely, you know, diving we're just scratching the surface here. Yeah. Um, well, let's see here. Um, I, I guess in terms of, um, air, uh, other areas that, well, uh, Okay. I'll, I'll, I've got what I've got to figure it out now. Um, so in terms of, um, uh, patients suffering from complex chronic illness, uh, such a big component of the pathophysiology has to do with mitochondrial dysfunction, um, whether it's my, you know, mycotoxins inhibiting mitochondrial function or chronic viruses or whatever might be inducing, say a cell danger response. Um, would you be able to speak to, um, the role that mitochondrial dysfunction or how mitochondrial dysfunction fits into your kind of mental algorithm, if you will, of helping folks um, dealing with complex chronic illness and uh, maybe to speak about it generally, and then I'll maybe ask some more specific questions about it if you don't sure, mind. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, totally. Uh, well, we, we definitely try to address mitochondrial dysfunction from the get-go if they can. Um, there's a lot of nutrients that we do use to support mitochondrial function. Um, you know, a couple brands that come to my mind is the, um, Research Nutritionals, they have their ATP 360 uh, product, which has a lot of good nutrients, cofactors for mitochondrial support, uh, CoQ10. Um, and then a lot, lately, we've been using a lot of methylene blue and NAD to support mitochondrial pathways, just optimize you know, ATP production. Um, and then uh, at our clinic, we have the intravenous uh, laser. I think you have the Weber laser as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Weber, Weber laser plus the methylene blue and, and a whole bunch of other nutrients, uh, has been pretty remarkable for turning around cases where there's no extreme fatigue or mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, and then lately I've been utilizing some of the peptides, uh, MOT C, for example, does help with, uh, mitochondrial turnover. So mitophagy, uh, which is helpful for clearing up the old damaged mitochondria. Um, and then what else? I think there's a, there's a new product on the market, Timeline Nutrition, the urolithin A, which is another uh, supplement uh, recently that's quite good for turning over the you know, damaged or diseased mitochondria as well, which then your body can try to facilitate the healthy ones to come back out again. Um, as far as the methylene blue goes, is that oral or IV methylene blue? Uh, we, I have access to multiple forms. Um, so we do use IV methylene blue, uh, but patients, you know, when they do my IV methylene blue, they only can do it like once or twice a week, you know, just based on finances. Uh, but orally, um, I've used, there's a compounding pharmacy out here that makes, uh, uh, oral capsule encapsulated liposomal methylene blue, uh, which allows them to get, you know, any from 25 to hundred milligrams per capsule. Um, so people can dose, you know, those once or twice a day. And then recently there's a sublingual, uh, liposomal, uh, methylene blue that way. 
Um, so that one allows uh, kind of a, close to what you can get with an IV absorption. But it, in this case, if you take it sublingually, it works, you know, down the GI tract as well. So that you can get some of the gut, you know, clearance as well with the methane glue besides the systemic absorption. Um, with the different forms of methylene blue, like say just a standard non-liposomal capsule versus um, a liposomal capsule versus a sublingual uh, liposomal form, um, uh, have you like what would you say the uh, ballpark? Like, what's the magnitude of difference in terms of benefit, like from one form to the next? Um, great question. Because personally, I've never used anything except for the liposomal form, so I can't. I can't compare to what, you know, it's out there. I know like on the market, uh, people can get the libel, I mean, not the, the, the standard uh, non-liposomal methylene blue drops on Amazon um, and they're cost-effective. It was like 30 bucks a bottle or something. Um, but I, I, I just can't compare it because I've been using the uh, uh, encapsulated liposomal methylene blue for many years. So I haven't, haven't had patients to actually say that they use regular methylene blue um, and then compared using this one to see if it's any better. So unfortunately I can't, yeah, can't no, compare. No, but no problem. Oral one people do say, you know, <laughs> you know they do say it's, it's quite effective for, for, you know, the treatment of like the chronic fatigue aspect, but uh, we also use it for the chronic infection side of things too. So there's a dual benefit um, for, for that as well. It's such a fascinating compound. Like I'm just, yeah. I'm fascinated by yeah. methylene blue. Um, and, uh, and sorry, I, I might've missed it. Just, uh, uh, the connection yeah. audio wise has been great the whole time. Um, but yeah. I might, might've missed it. Um, have you noticed a difference between the sublingual liposomal versus the encapsulated liposomal methylene blue in terms of efficacy? Um, so far I haven't used the sublingual enough to tell. Um, I'm just transitioning off of people that have been using the capsulates to the uh, sublingual just to have comparison. The cost effectiveness is also a lot cheaper with the sublingual uh, liposomal versus the encapsulated one. I mean, in, in here in the US, uh, about three months supply can easily be in the four or $500, $600 range wow. uh, of the encapsulated methylene blue versus the sublingual, maybe under 200 bucks for three months worth. So it's mm -hmm. a big of a price, bit of a price difference in, in terms of methylene blue. So I yeah. think, you know, I'm trying to see if this works out cost effectively and also just the same effectiveness for patients, but right. too soon to tell. Fair enough. Is, is the dosage much different from like the milligram yeah. dosage in each? It's, it's, it's very, it's very different. Um, the encapsulated one, like, like goes up to hundred milligrams per mm -hmm. capsule versus yeah. with the sublingual one, it's probably, you're only dosing might be like 10, 10 milligrams okay. per dosage. Gotcha. Um, yeah. But the, I guess the difference is if it does absorb as it, as, as it should sublingually, it'll get into the bloodstream more effectively mm -hmm. um, and has, you know, maybe have its effects there. Who knows right now? So far, it's, it's too soon to tell for me. I, I've heard testimonials from other uh, functional medicine providers have, that have been using that liposomal liquids or sublingual one uh, with great results. So I'm just testing it on my patients. Great. Um, and uh, just a quick laser question. I didn't realize you did the same uh, that, that you do the IV yeah. photomyomodulation. Yeah. Very, very cool. Um, so I'm, I'm assuming you're running the red laser to uh, uh, yes. in combination yes. with the methylene blue. And uh, yeah. do you mind just speaking to um, like, uh, do you have the hundred milliwatt um, output laser or 
Uh, do, do you know what the potency is of the laser? Uh, uh, great question. It's been a while. I okay, no problem. For the um, for the red, yeah, for the red laser, I I I got the machine probably like four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. So whatever at that time, I don't think they had the strongest output red they've, laser. They've or few, maybe well, I, they've they've got the five, well, the one hundred, and then I think the five hundred milliwatts only supposed to be for topical application, I believe. Um, uh, for the red, anyways, for the red laser, I for the red, I, I do so. want to. I think it's probably the the ten. Okay. I can't remember. Yeah, honestly, okay. I can't remember right um, now. And, and I'm just wondering how long do you I can look back there for... and tell you in a second. <laughs> oh, uh, oh well, yeah, it's, so, it's okay. Uh, 20, yeah. 20 minutes, did you say? Uh, 20 minutes, yeah. Usually, okay. Well, it depends on the situation, but usually after methylene blue, we'll run it for uh, at minimum 15 minutes to 20 minutes Right. to get the most out of methylene blue. Right. So you do IV methylene blue followed by the laser or it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah stuff yeah yeah we, we've played with that with some patients here too and um yeah i've seen some pretty pretty cool results with it so although i find like some patients they're like i like the methylene blue but like they just really don't like the blue urine and they're like I, i'm oh yeah the toilet and so it's like ah, oh, i don't know what to say about that i don't want to uh, like get sent any cleaning bills for stained toilets oh, but i know it's it is I, I tell them the, the hack for that is um cleaning vinegar works pretty well or Vitamin C helps to uh, reduce the methylene blue. So if you get blue on stains and stuff, uh, just okay. a vitamin C, like liquid or powder oh, okay. uh, would be a good cleaning agent. Yeah. Du- duly noted. <laughs> there we go. There's a published uh, research article on how to clean methylene blue. Really? And it lists ascorbic acid as the reducing agent. So oh. you can actually uh, clean a lot of blue stains just okay. on that. Just methylene blue. Duly noted. Okay. Thanks for good the to know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some patients will be very pleased to hear that. That's good to know. Um, well, uh, Dr. Lee, just as we're um, kind of winding uh, down on our time here, um, I'm just going to ask you a couple of rapid fire questions, if you don't mind, uh, okay. hopefully we'll cover a little more ground that way. Um, so would you mind speaking to um, what your top uh, one to three favorite functional lab tests are these days? Uh, okay. So the I guess the foundational lab that we use is through a Cleveland Heart Lab here in the U.S. Um, this one looks, you know, at your uh, hormonal markers, your lipids in a lot of detail, including ApoA1, ApoB, and LP little A. Mm-hmm. Um, looks at uh, your blood sugar, insulin resistant markers, um, TMAO, a lot, a lot of like the fancier blood sugar regulation markers. Um, and then it, it looks at your, um, it, it can run the MTHFR, which we do for, for people. So that one would be kind of our foundational one. Great. Oh, did, did I lose you, Dr. Lee, or can you still hear me? That's a good check for omega-3s and your Oh, uh, can you hear me, Dr. Lee? Sorry. There you go. Oh, sorry, folks. I think we're having a little bit of technical. Yeah, difficulty. I can hear you. I just had a, I think my internet had a ability here. Okay. A okay. L- little hiccup. Okay. Um, so I, I think we lost you right around the time that, Are you still there? uh, oh, okay. You were good. Okay. I think we lost okay, you right good. around the time that, uh, you finished talking about the first test, like the Cleveland heart lab one. So, uh, what, what was okay. the second test on the list? Uh, the second test, um, I, I use, um, let's see, 
Genova Nutrival seems to be a pretty good net to begin with to kind of look at things under the hood. So that one um, has a good look at your micronutrient levels, amino acid profile, and then a snapshot of your organic acids to, to see if there is any sign of fungal or bacterial overgrowth. Mm-hmm. And then some of your detoxification markers, and then uh, at least a snapshot of your blood heavy metal levels. Um, so it's a good single test uh, to kind of get a good look at things. Um, and then the other one I use is um, through Vibrant uh, America, Vibrant Wellness Panel, where we do their uh, urinary toxin markers. So they look at urinary mycotoxins and heavy metals and um, environmental chemicals. So that gives you a deeper look at some of the environmental burdens. And then oftentimes we will use the uh, doctor's data. So this is a fourth test uh, as the doctor's data post-challenge a heavy metal to see what burdens of the metals are left in the tissues. So that gives you a good overview of the environmental burdens that the patients have to begin with. Um, So those, those three would be some of the foundational, you know, starting points as far as testing goes for, for people. Great. Um, thank you. And a um, little bit of a glass half empty question, but I, I think yeah. uh, folks have appreciated when I've asked it before. Um, so are there um, any supplements or therapies that um, uh, didn't pan out the way you hoped they would in practice? You were excited about them and it was like, ah, I gave that a good college try and just no, no bueno. Um, any, uh, any that come to mind? Um, good question, actually. Yeah, there. Well, one of the peptides in the past we use uh, for weight loss uh, was known known as AOD. It stands for anti-obesity drug. Um, so it's a fragment of the human growth hormone hormone, uh, and you know it sounds on paper like it can help with weight loss, uh, but it doesn't work for weight loss. <laughs> really? So it, it oh, no. really does, doesn't work, unfortunately. Um, it, it actually has a better effect um, on cartilage and collagen formation though. So it's still like, even though it's not used for weight loss anymore, we can still utilize it, it has utility for more of the regenerative joint aspect. So for people that have like uh, arthritis or lack or decreasing collagen um, or cartilage in their knees, that's working quite helpful for. So it has a saving grace in being able to be used as injectables for getting them to grow some, you know, connective tissue in their in their knees. Well, that that's good. At least there's yeah, yeah the saving grace, as you said. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and anything uh, else that springs to mind? Um, I'm trying to think because we phased out many products over the years just due to the so overwhelming different products. Um, off the top of my head. I can't really think of some that that have been like uh hi- all hyped up and 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 uh and have no no uh, nothing to show for them i can't think of it right now okay no problem yeah that's oh, a good question putting, though it's a great question I, if i come to it i'll think of it i'll, I'll look at sure. it later but we can circle yeah, back there's probably some that i just, just kind of forgot about it because it's been so long ago mm-hmm. no worries um, uh, next question is, um, what are you the most excited about in medicine slash health right now? Um, right now I am still a great big fan of the uh, use of photodynamic therapy. Mm-hmm. 
seen so much utility over the past few years. Um, just uh, you know, getting so many great results with people from all the chronic infections um, because it, it works wonders on just restoring their vitality and really eradicating a lot of pathogens. So I think for me, that's been a really fun time so far and just learning more about that. Uh, learn is a lot of the AI technologies on um, diagnostics and treatment. Um, there, there's this company out here in the US called Neo7. Have you heard of them before? No. Um, there's, there's a naturopath, uh, Dr. John Cateranzo, um, who put together this company. And it, it's a really um, interesting treatment because it's very customized and personalized to the patients. But this is using a bit of AI um, technology to uh, create the plans and the treatments for the patients. But this delves beyond like, like just treating the illness itself. It helps to correct some of the metabolic pathways in the patients. And the utility of this particular program is it can be helpful for treating patients with cancer, including chronic you know, infections and other chronic illnesses. So it's really, really neat that it can help just fix a person's metabolism um, via you know, the use of AI personalized peptides. Oh, okay. So it's, uh, and sorry, maybe I missed that again. The connection was a little, little spotty for a second. Yeah. So, so it's, uh, ultimately creates a peptide therapy. Like it's not putting them on other supplements and things. It's a, it's a new, yeah. uh, personalized peptide treatment. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's personalized. Cool. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, also not legal in Canada, unfortunately, but, uh, uh, uh no, <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's very cool. Um, I'll have to keep my eyes peeled for that one. Yeah, I've been I've been really thinking a lot in the last couple of months about just how AI is going to have an impact on on health and medicine. Um, and yeah, it's yeah. I, I'm not surprised to hear that somebody's already yeah going down that rabbit hole. Yeah, I mean um, we we have smart minds, but uh, it's just aggregating you know hundreds and thousands of smarter minds all together, and you know funneling into you know treatments that work for people. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've been playing with uh, chat GPT. Uh, yeah, I always get the last two letters mixed up of uh, GPT um, lately. And like, as I, I teach a, you know, ozone therapy certification course, I'm like, I, I do the literature review like every year as I have for a while. So like, I, I know my ozone really well. And so I've kind of like, you know, played with that a little bit, like on topics that I know a lot about. And it's like, it, it's, it covers the bases like really well. Um, like it's, uh, it's yeah. really quite impressive to me. And then there's other topics where I'm like, Oh, I, I don't know as much about this. And I was like, Oh, I've, I've learned some stuff, you know, it's, it can scour so quickly, uh, so quickly. It's, it's pretty, pretty interesting. So we'll, we'll see how that all evolves yeah. over the next little bit, but yep. Um, so, uh, Dr. Lee, just, um, where we've only got a couple of minutes left, um, here, um, were there any, um, any parting uh, thoughts that you wanted to share? I'd, I'd like to, uh, before we formally wrap up, I'd like to uh, ask you how folks can get in touch with you and whatnot, um, uh, with any online offerings or how they can work with you in practice. But just before we get to that uh, very, very last step, um, sure, any, sure, uh, sure. any parting things that you wanted to, to share at all before, uh, we, we start to wrap it up. Yeah, I think, um, an avenue that I'm exploring a lot more is, is the connection of the mind-body medicine attached mm -hmm. to a lot of the physiological things that we've been doing. Mm -hmm. um, so it's still not legal here either, but psychedelic use mm -hmm. uh, along with 
you know, a lot of the cognitive retraining things or just mindfulness and intentionality with, with healing has been quite neat to, to talk about because the mind can influence a lot of the body's healing. And so people who are sometimes stuck in their chronic illness, their minds are sometimes stuck there too. Um, so that's an area that I've been just, you know, preaching or telling all the patients to focus on just the, the power of using your mind to believe that you can heal. And the, the more detail behind it is better for the body to have a kind of a blueprint to follow. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, along with the assistance of some of the psychedelic therapies, the mind can be a little bit clearer for, for the pathways to follow. So I think that's a new part of it. Again, the problem is it's not legal. So, you know, you have to use what you can or where you can, you know, but, but I think that's that's probably a, a more attainable aspect and it's relatively inexpensive if you can find sources for that stuff. And then, but the cheapest one is just thinking that you can heal. That's that's actually the the, the cheapest thing you can do and the most probably some, for some people, the most effective thing they can do. Yeah, it's, uh, it's such good advice. And like, it's simple um, advice, um, although, well, it's a, it's a simple concept. But then I know yeah. for some folks kind of getting to that place, it can be yeah. quite challenging. But yeah, it's, it's uh, you're, you're, I think the fourth or fifth uh, yeah. doc I've interviewed um, so far, who's like, also mentioned that. And yeah, I, I highly, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's a really important, oftentimes missing piece. And folks are so it's so much easier to say, okay, I'll just, just tell me what pills to take, but it's like, ah, getting into that mind body aspect, yeah. it can get really messy. It can be challenging. It's emotional. Um, but yeah, really, really profoundly helpful. So it's a really, really good point. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Dr. Lee, would you mind just sharing with folks, um, are there any, um, uh, online offerings you have, or uh, do you just work one-on-one -on -one with folks? If so, um, do you do any, um, distance consultations if someone's like in Florida and they're like, I can't fly over to, uh, beautiful California, but you know, I, I'd like Dr. Lee to, you know, comment on my case or consult on my case. Are there ways that folks can work with you or access you besides just seeing you one-on-one -on -one in practice? Um, yeah, I mean, through our website, which is uh, www.opthealthwellness.com, they can reach out. Um, I primarily see people in office just because we have all these additional therapies that we can do, but there are, there are a handful of patients I do see remotely. Um, the thing is, the limitation is remotely, we can't order labs, we can't prescribe medicines. So we could give you all the information. It's just on that level is you might need to find providers locally who can you know, offer you the specific lab testing and or the medications that are required. Uh, supplements, you know, they're easier to cross the borders if need to. So that that that's where we can help patients like guide their treatment plans uh, or just get a fresh set of eyes on their condition. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I do work with people virtually on that, but I say this, the smaller, uh, smaller percentage of my practice because um, I just I can only see so many people at a time. But physically, there, you know, everybody that locally here we can see, or people do fly in occasionally if they if they need some more direct treatments uh, mm -hmm. or some of the injections that we offer. Right. Um, and uh, are there um, social media um, sites that you post on? Um, primarily, um, I do have my Instagram, which is uh, Dr. Clement Lee, so D R C L E M E N T L E E. Um, I think that's probably what I would use the most. Uh, I mean, I have Facebook and stuff, but I really haven't had much time, honestly, to put into any of these social media uh, ventures. Uh, YouTube 
has been a pipe dream. It still hasn't started yet, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, at some point, it, that I, I do have a channel as well. But just there's nothing. There's not. There's no content there yet. So yeah, that's that's gonna happen sometime. Great. Well, um, I'll I'll post your uh, clinic website and Instagram uh, page in the show yeah. notes um, below, or if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, in the description below. So if folks uh, want to contact you, they'll they'll know how. And um, yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Again, it was really nice chatting with a fellow colleague who yeah. is in the trenches with complex chronic illness, and uh, really appreciate your time today. Uh, thanks for having me, Doctor Raid. Been awesome to to be able to share what we do. You know, it's just more people need to hear about this. It's it's very important for sure. Well, thank, yeah. thanks so much again, and thanks everyone uh, listening to the this episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. Uh, thanks for your attention, and please stay tuned for the next episode.